0: in the evening <coughs> we've been doing some chanting which is um, a repeated short verse that is actually almost the direct translation of of um, a verse from the suttas that is is a direct sh- it's a description of the practice of metta of loving kindness and the other three brahma viharas that's uh, found in the suttas there The the verse from from the suttas is is, uh, this. Here bhikkhus, and the word bhikkhu means a practitioner, someone like one of us. Here bhikkhus, one abides pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. And so above and below, around and everywhere, one abides pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. So these are the Buddha's words on, on, uh, in this case, loving-kindness, metta, this quality of mind and heart that is one of the paramis that we're speaking about and exploring this week. And, and we might find that chant and those words um, we might resonate with them, find it beautiful in some way, but it can sound pretty grand, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. It it can lead us to start out from a place of, of kind of defeated uh, relationship as though this is, you know, kind of beautiful, but beyond we can't let alone get our mind around sort of all beings, the all-encompassing world, and then abundant, exalted, immeasurable sounds uh, it's kind of maybe beyond what we might feel capable of. There's a, a short description of the uh, this quality and the way one might uh, relate to this, cultivate this quality of uh, loving-kindness, of metta, from, uh, from the Abhidhamma, one of the texts. And it says very simply, just as one would feel friendliness... Upon seeing a dear friend, so one extends loving kindness to all beings, just as one would feel the simple quality of friendliness. And the word metta is very closely related to another word in this Pali language, mitta. Mitta means friend. It just means friend, and these are very directly related. So we use this translation has become quite... um, quite widespread of loving-kindness for this word, but I think friendliness or loving-friendliness might be a, a, a actually a better translation for this. And in another text, it's, there are a couple of things that I think are really useful when uh, thinking about and engaging with this, uh, this quality. It said that the proximate cause for the arising of this feeling of friendliness of loving-kindness, is seeing lovable, lovableness in beings. And it's said that its footing, its foundation, is seeing with kindness. And, you know, if we look at our own mind and heart and, and we look at others in the world around us, we probably feel like, well, it's kind of a mixed package there, you know, and there are things we like about ourselves and others and things we don't think are so uh, beautiful and we don't like so much. But a lot of the time we tend to focus, maybe especially with ourselves and often with others on, on the things that we don't think are so good, what we don't like so much, what we see is not beautiful there. And, and this, this tendency often uh, we wind up seeing with unkindness, seeing what is not lovable in our own hearts, in in the world around us. And this has the tendency of feeding feelings of separation, of judging and comparing. So in this practice and in the cultivation of this quality, we make this conscious decision to focus on what is good, what is lovable. We see through kind eyes, not in a deluded way, where we pretend that we or others are, are perfect or are, you know, Well, the teacher Suzuki Roshi put it very simply. He said, you're all perfect just as you are, and you could use a little work. (laughs) So, you know, we we aren't having a deluded idea that there isn't maybe work to be done. (laughs) Improvement is possible. We're in this for transformation, right? This is real. But we're choosing to um, make a conscious choice to focus on what is good, what is lovable. Seeing through kind eyes, in a in a wise and intentional way, and and this can really radically change the way that we live in the world. It can become more our default way of seeing, and we can create, consciously create a field of goodwill in the world, become a a, a place um, a place of rest and ease for others when we when we make this intention. And this quality of friendliness that we've been touching on in various ways in our instructions, this idea that we might be able to infuse our practice with this quality of simple uh, care of kindness. This really balances our practice in, in I think, an essential way because it infuses the mind and the heart with, with a feeling of simple warmth because sometimes this insight practice can feel pretty cool. And there's an almost clinical relationship to uh, the way we can engage with our experience at times. And, and this pure insight meditation, in one place it's been called the dry path of insight. <laughs> but this quality of friendliness, of metta, it, um, it eases this. It, and we start, when, we st- when I was talking earlier about seeing with kindness and seeing what is lovable, one way, easy way that we can touch into this that we've already spoken about is, is recognizing this universal, universal wish or movement of heart that we share with any being, all beings, to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe. And this is something we share with all beings, and this is an inherently lovable uh, movement of the heart, an inherently lovable wish. It reflects a quality of goodness, that we would feel ourselves not only moved in this way, but, but worthy of this, all beings worthy of this. And so this quality of mette, it can soothe the mind and heart and moisten it, increases the, moisten this tendency to the, be dry in the way of the dry path of inside, increases the flexibility, the pliability of the mind and heart, creates more spaciousness and ease there, which really makes it easier to, um, to do this practice, I mean, this practice, this is not easy. You may have noticed. Some of you have been at this for a long time. And we've all been at it pretty steadily here for a few days. If it was easy, we would all be fully enlightened and we could go home. <laughs> the 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 instructions are simple. It's not that it's we just don't get it. But it's not easy to really investigate in the depth that we're being asked to do and to really come to an understanding that frees the mind, that uproots the, the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, you could say. You know, we've been practicing these for, in various ways for a long time. So it isn't easy. And we, you know, we, we come up against a lot of stuff that's hard to be with someone, I think it's John Barth, the author, said, self-knowledge is almost always bad news. You know, and a lot of times, you know, we <laughs> have a lot of bad ha- <laughs> We see a lot of old habits and, you know, these deeply conditioned knots, internal knots, that we just, we see them over and over again. We've seen them from every angle and we still get caught at times. One of my colleagues and teachers calls them karmic knots. And they can just feel like, that it, they can feel insurmountable, that metta gives us, uh, 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 supports us in, in walking this path, because it's not always easy. So we need this warmth, this pliability. There's a teaching called the metta sutta. Sutta means discourse. And it's one of the most beloved um, of the Buddha's di- teachings, discourses. It's it's probably chanted and reflected on more often than any other one. And people in Buddhist countries like Thailand and Burma, they people chant it every day. I chanted a lot myself. It's one that I've learned and learned a particular way of chanting it. And I, I bring it that reflection to mind quite a lot. Uh, this Pali scholar um, teacher, Andy Olensky, who, who's founder and teacher at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in uh, near IMS in Massachusetts. He described it once in, in a, an essay he wrote uh, looking at this, uh, analyzing this sutta as a jewel sparkling softly but compellingly through the centuries. This is his description of this teaching. And actually the full name of this is the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And the word Karaniya means uh, to do or or something that is to be done. it's It points to this, uh, something that one would do. So this actually is the discourse, the sutta, the discourse on loving kindness, which is to be done. So the sutta is not only uh, you know, a description of this quality, but it's actually a teaching on the practice it's a it's a teaching not only on the practice of loving kindness but it actually goes much deeper than that there's a lot there it's worth exploring i think because it's quite rich this sutta this teaching has the form of a kind of of a poem really in in sort of three parts and and there's a way that it uh it kind of parallels the the teaching of the eightfold noble path this part of the, the Four Noble Truths, this really core, essential teaching of the Buddha. There's a direct parallel there in one way that, that um, the teaching of the Eightfold Path is organized as what is called three trainings in sila, samadhi, panya. The other night I talked about dana, sila, bhavana. This is another one of those organization organizing uh, ways of looking at a teaching. So this, these three trainings in sila, in ethical conduct, in samadhi, or meditation and concentration, and panya, wisdom. And the the metta-sutta kind of follows this in a a way. So I'm going to go through the sutta today, and um, I'm going to chant it in parts because um, I like to do it. And I'm going to do it in English. The version I'm doing is a chant that's done by the Thai forest sangha in the uh, Ajahn Chah, the Western Ajahn Chah lineage, the, so some of you may know it, it's the way they do it at Amaravati, the way they do it at Abhayagiri so if anyone knows this and wants to join in, um, I'm going to do it in pieces, please join me, it's nice if we get more than just my voice but I'm going to go through the per- first part of this which is the, the sila part, part of the of the teaching <coughs> This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. A lot of you know this, this teaching, this chant. There's a collection of essays, a book called For a Future to Be Possible, that was edited and compiled by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, and he has a, an essay in there. And he speaks about um, sila and our relationship to our conduct, ethical conduct, in terms of what he calls the five wonderful precepts. And he, he said this in that book, the five precepts are love itself, To love is to understand, protect, and bring well-being to the object of our love. The practice of the precepts accomplishes this. We protect ourselves and we protect one another. I think this is really a a beautiful way to see um, our relationship to our conduct and how we're living, to the precepts, for example. To see them as, as a manifestation of this quality of love, of care, of kindness, and as a protection, that's really what they do. They they give us a protection in the world. And they really are a reflection of this uh, care, a deep caring, that we would care that much about ourselves and about others, that we would pay attention to how we're living. and not intentionally add to the suffering in the world through our conduct. This first part of the sutta also speaks a lot to the life of simplicity and um, kind, of, kind of renunciation that uh, was followed by the Buddha and his his disciples at the time of his life, is still followed um, by those who walk the path, and especially in a more... Um, obvious way by the nuns and monks who, who, in the Theravada tradition, who undertake that life of real deep simplicity. And I spoke about this the other night in terms of uh, this daily dependence on alms for food and the interconnectedness that is in the community there. The, uh, the renunciates, the those in robes, dependent for their sustenance on uh, the community and offering the teachings and their conduct in exchange for that. And there's this um, way that that life is interwoven that I think is very beautiful and has been there since the time, since before the time of the Buddha. So this this part um, that we already chanted, humbled, not conceited, contented, easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, frugal in their ways, not proud and demanding in nature. So this, this section really speaks to that lifestyle very much, this teaching given at that time to those who were living that life. But there's a lesson, I think, for all of us in this, in terms of how we are living in the world, and this um, intention and and uh, encouragement towards simplicity in our lives, and really looking at at what we need you know the the um, what we want and what we need that gets quite um, confused in our minds a lot of the time care and mindfulness about how we live in the world, how we use resources, for example. And a lot of encouragement here at IRC in reflecting on this, of course. But how much do we really need? You know, we're so voracious as a species. You know, we want everything. We want all the best stuff for ourselves and we don't leave a lot left over for other beings who we share this planet with. And you know, our economic systems, are based on continual growth as though that could ever be sustainable. There's a limit to that and and you know all the time all the while we're fouling the air and water and we turn the landscape into a desert and we would never tolerate this kind of behavior on the part of another species. You know if it was chipmunks or prairie dogs <laughs> we would do our best to rub them out. We would try, we would er eradicate them as a terrible, terrible pest. But we put ourselves, we hold ourselves apart. It leads to so many problems. And we seldom ask ourselves, what do I really need right now to be happy, to feel content? You know, we're, we're so barraged with a lot of, in the world of advertising, a lot of stuff that's That's purpose is to persuade us that we're in a state of lack. But we need this thing. Whatever it is, then we'll be happy. But if we take the time to look, we might see that a simple life actually brings its own kind of contentment and that we don't actually need that much. You know, this quality of contentment is so rare in the world. I remember when I was... um, Early, early in my practice, a couple of different times, I had a striking um, sort of realization about this quality of contentment. I remember it came very early. I was in India in a place called Bodh Gaya. It's a place where it said the Buddha was enlightened, and there's a large temple complex, and the whole town exists as a pilgrimage place, really. To this beautiful temple compound and and this tree that is said to be an offspring of the tree that the Buddha sat under it's quite inspiring if you if that sort of thing touches your heart to go to places like this and I was practicing on a retreat in in the Thai uh, vihara the Thai pilgrimage rest house area where all the Thailand and Japan and Burma and um, to bed, and all of the Buddhist places where Buddhism is alive in the world, they have a place where pilgrims can stay when they go on, go to visit places like Bodh Gaya. You can stay at these places. And I was doing a retreat there with a group of people, and and uh, the the men were given a place to sleep underneath the main temple. Um, it was not. It was you couldn't stand up straight there. It was not a finished out <laughs> basement. It was a crawl space. That you know you could get in there and you could walk kind of bent over <laughs> and you know it wouldn't have passed um uh what do you what is it permitting it wouldn't have <laughs> passed <laughs> wouldn't have been used as a place in this country, but we were down there, we had these straw mats on the ground, mosquito nets, you know a lot of us under there sleeping there um we had it was quite a ways from the bathroom, so we had these big five gallon buckets to pee in at night. And it was somebody's job to carry those. Uh, I just pointed at myself for anyone who has their <laughs> eyes closed, <laughs> to carry those and pour them off <laughs> down the toilets in the morning. And, you know, we were practicing. We were on retreat. It was like here, only different situation. <laughs> um, you know, a little different, a little more austere. <laughs> but I remember one morning I was walking along with my two, my ten gallons of urine. Um, And I just was, I noticed this. I was totally content. I did not need my circumstances to be different than they were. I was, I was, there was this deep contentment there in being, being able to practice and being in this place. And it was just, I thought, wow, you know, if this is, if this is my life from now on, I'll, I'm just fine with this. Now, who knows after, years, maybe I would feel differently. But at the time, there was this this kind of contentment in my mind and heart that really surprised me, really struck me. I did not want anything to be different. You know, and there's dogs, packs of dogs howling all over and honking horns and you know, India's not quiet. If we, if this was India or Burma, we would be surrounded by lots of people living a, lo- a loud and noisy life and blaring loudspeakers of very you know, there's a there's a co- an interesting combination of high volume and low fidelity that we find in in places <laughs> like that, where you know louder is better, but the quality of the sound is <laughs> is not really <laughs> important. So anyway, it's worth looking at. You know, when d- when do we really touch into s- place times of contentment? Sometimes it's not it's not dependent on our outer circumstances, and that uh, deep simplicity can actually bring real contentment at times the second part of the the uh, second sort of section of this uh, teaching of the metta sutta is kind of the the samadhi or meditation part in this uh, uh, framework i'm using of sila samadhi panya it's the middle section of this and this is really um, kind of the actual practice in a way and, and I have found in chanting the sutta, both in Pali and in English over the years, that, that the, the, re- the saying of these words, the repeating of them, the doing of the chanting, actually has become a kind of metta practice in a way that I, um, I didn't have that. I didn't think it would be that, but it is. And I've spoken to others for whom this is the case. There is some power in repeating words and in giving voice to this intention, this aspiration, this, uh, these qualities. So we'll chant, uh, and those who would like to join will chant this next part of the sutta. This is the second or middle part. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty medium short or small the seen and the unseen those living near and far away those born and to be born may all beings be at ease this is there's something so deceptively simple in this wish Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. And then it goes through this, you know, it's, there's this, we find this in this case and in other places of uh, the, the traditional phrases for um, offering metta, that there's this inclusive quality there, all beings. All beings, that kind of gets everyone, but just in case, we want to make sure the small ones and the medium-sized ones, I feel like we're kind of in that medium-sized category. Large ones, weak or strong, whatever beings, great, mighty, living near those far away, visible and invisible, those who are not even born yet, who will be coming to birth. May all of them, all beings. There's another chant that's done, some of you might know, and there are these traditionally, these 12 categories of beings the first is all beings. That kind of, that includes pretty much every being. <laughs> all beings, there's nothing, you know, kind of missing. But just in case, they go through all these ones, ones that breathe, ones that are in different, it's these 12, 12 groups, just in case. I love this about this quality of metta that we make sure we don't leave anyone out. And it's this, gen- this pure benevolent, generosity of heart that just wishes well to all beings no matter what. It's real simple. There's no strings attached. And beings are seen as worthy just because they are living beings. And right now somewhere in this world, in a lot of places, someone is wishing well to all beings, including you, each one of you. And they're doing it for the joy of that offering. There are no strings. We don't have to prove ourselves worthy you know, metta has this capacity to become that unconditional, where we we offer it to beings just because they are living beings. Sentience is the is the to be qualified. So we're all pre-qualified to be worthy of this. There's a teaching, one place in one of the teachings where the Buddha says that you could search the entire world in all possible realms of existence beyond this world and we would never find another being more worthy of love than we are each one of us is ourselves that's pretty powerful teaching there because we often uh, can feel that we or others are not worthy that we have to somehow fix our tragically flawed personalities or something to be worthy of love but this in this teaching and in this practice that is not ever the case So then the next few verses, uh, still in this this um, uh, mind development portion, this the samadhi part, you could say, of the teaching, um, it shifts a little bit away from maybe this, this direct simple offering of the practice and towards a kind of uh, a bit of a commentary on uh, some of the qualities of mind and heart that one cultivates in the practice and in um, in, ex- in really turning towards this. So, uh, let's chant this next part together, those who would like to join me. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. There's a line in the second part, of second verse, second uh, portion of this that refers to this uh, uh, image of a mother protecting her child. And, and I know this sometimes uh, when I've spoken to people uh, and, and I've seen that this can bring up a lot for some people who feel like, well, that, that wasn't the case for me. And so we might translate this as, as a good mother would protect and look after her child. But this image in the text of motherly love, is is uh, used as a as an example because it's it's a this uh, sense this this is naturally arising, and in in some places there's an image of it's compared to the the love of a mother cow for her newborn calf. And um, I had this interesting <laughs> time. I was I was living as a monk in Burma. And I was living in Upper Burma in a place called the Sagaing Hills. I mentioned uh, in my last talk and. I would walk down from, uh, I was living in a simple little monastery and staying in a, actually in a cave up there, and I would walk down to the town. It was a really nice cave. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've been there. It's kind of a, you know, as caves go, it's pretty pretty puka. It has, <laughs> it has a, you know, long walking path and. It was a cave, but it was it was you know not just a hole in the, <laughs> in the side of the cliff. It had been kind of fixed up. Apparently, it was it had oh it had an upstairs and a balcony, <laughs> and apparently a, uh, uh, a, a fully enlightened uh, practitioner had been fully awakened there. Had been liberated in the cave. It has pretty good vibes. But I'd walk down to the town and go on alms round, and I followed the same route. And um, it was actually quite beautiful because I would come down. Uh, This a pathway and down to a road, and all these other um, people who were living, monks who were living in the in different small monasteries would would like these little streams down to this river, and then we would uh, walk through the town there. And um, I came around the corner once uh, on the same route, but there was a there was a cow and a brand new calf, like minutes. Less than, a, you know, it wasn't even standing up yet, and they stand up right away, and she was bathing it, cleaning it, after having given birth just just before I came around the corner. And there was this, um, I thought, oh, that's why they have that image of the the love of a, a cow, mother cow for her calf. It was just such a um, sense of, of this uh, just direct expression of care, of kindness there. This section um, of the teaching also, speaks to this kind of boundless quality of the metta. This n- no holding back and spreading outwards in all directions. No limitations to it there. And, and metta has this capacity to actually become, you know, in that first um, uh, first uh, description uh, that I read where it says abundant, exalted, immeasurable. This sense of of there's no limit to it. And it's uh, there's no conditions of any kind there. It reminds me of um, a monk I had the, the great fortune to meet and to visit on a number of occasions. Uh, he was um, a Cambodian monk named Mahagosananda. Some of you may have heard of him. He was, um, he was called the Sangha Raja, the king of the Sangha in Cambodia, and he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize I think six or seven times. He should have received it that many times in my opinion. And there's a beautiful um, photograph that um, they have in a, in a gratitude hut in, uh, at Spirit Rock, but some of you may have seen it other places. And it's a picture of um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Mahagosananda bowing to one another and their they're bent over almost double. Each one is trying to get lower, <laughs> <laughs> to uh, show greater respect. It, it's very—I don't know. There's something about that um, that mutual respect from these two highly respectable beings. Um, that's quite beautiful. To that that gesture. It it's um it's it brings up emotion for me. I'm thinking of Mahagosananda. And towards the end of his life, he was um, he had decline of his mental capacities Um, probably was suffering from alzheimer's disease but he um and so he became very very simple almost more childlike um in a way and i went to see him once near the end of his life and um i went he was living in this small temple not far from the insight meditation society in massachusetts and i went and, and one of the monks the other monks was there and and I said I had come to pay respects to um to Mahagosananda and, and they said, Yes, you can go, he's in his room and um I went in to bow to him and, and he just had this huge smile on his face and you know, he didn't know me. It wasn't like we were old friends. I had seen him a number of times, but he, he didn't know who I was. But he, he started taking things off the shelves in his room. and gave me a bar of soap and some other little things that he had there and just beaming. And um, it was just like being bathed in love, love and light, like a, a field of metta. And this sense there <coughs> in, that, in this reflection and bringing this to mind of this um, limitless capacity that was all that um to be careful when I tell stories like this um, brings up a lot in my heart but um, it was just like being bathed in this quality that's all that was left really everything else had fallen away and then the last line of this section it says um, this is said to be the sublime abiding or divine abiding, this Brahma, Vihara, this is um, how that section ends. And and there is a sense that when when we touch into this quality in a really deep way, in a profound way, maybe as exemplified by uh, my story just now, but each of us, there are times when the mind and heart can really touch into this, and they're really imbued with this quality. It really is a divine abiding. and. There's this sense in that, at that time at least, that there's a that we are complete and whole and at ease and not lacking in any way. It really is this quality of a divine abiding. And then we have the last part of this teaching, which is in this frame of sila samadhi panya, the wisdom, or panya is the word for wisdom in Pali. And this, um, this is a very short section at the very end, and the tone of it is quite different from the rest of the of the sutta. And and there's this shift towards wisdom and uh, understanding, liberating wisdom, and the heart's complete and final release. So we can uh, chant that together, <coughs> those who would like to by not holding to fixed views, the pure hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Though so this is a direct pointing to the uh, transcendent and, and and finally the liberating possibility of the practice, in the first line, there, there's reference to uh, it says the pure-hearted one, and one way we could look at this is the uh, the the mind of a fully liberated, a fully enlightened being. What's called an arahant in in uh, Pali, who has walked this path to completion and has really uprooted the the uh, energies of greed, hatred, and delusion. Those are no longer running; uh, they no longer have sway over the mind and heart perhaps they're completely uprooted and no longer arise at all. But it's not only, for in my mind, it not only points to that possibility that may seem far away, but I think points to um, this same quality that, that I spoke about in terms of metta as a brahma-vihara, and it said, this is said to be the sublime or divine abiding. There are times when any one of us might touch into this quality of, of pure-heartedness. I know this is real for me. Times when I touch that, and it may not last. It may not be. It may not be the the ongoing state there, but that doesn't diminish the reality of that. There are times when we touch into that quality of pure-heartedness. We can get a taste of that possibility. Any one of us can. And in this this part of the sutta, there is a there are a description of of some of the qualities. A few. It uh, touches on a few little qualities of, of liberating uh, transcendent wisdom. The first of these, it's the, the f- first line there, by not holding to fixed views. And the Buddha taught that there are, um, that views that we cling to are limited fabrications that often do much more to, do, to obscure the truth and confuse us than to bring any kind of clarity. And there's all kinds of examples of what we could call fixed or mistaken views that we might hold, assumptions about ourselves, about the nature of reality, that do not actually reflect the truth of things and and actually lead to greater stress and suffering and struggle for us and in the world. I mean, we just think of the views views that are widely held, like, say, of national boundaries. (laughs) You know, if you... If you see these photographs from space, those lines are not on the planet. These are concepts, but wars are fought over them, <laughs> as though they're as though they're a reflection of reality. I mean, yes, there are there are realities of political and and uh, national. Uh, differences in truth, but so much of that is just an idea that's clung to a view that is not seen, a filter that one is looking through. And views about ourselves and others, you know, that we're a fearful person or there's something wrong with me, I'm not lovable. And sometimes these are just woven into the way we look at things and not questioned, not even seen. Views of what we feel we might be capable of. I can't do this. It's too hard. I could never realize liberation of mind and heart. You know, do, we, do we have this, do we cling to these views in ways that just limit us or become self-fulfilling? All kinds of things that we, things that we take to be solid and on, have ongoing solid reality and existence that are just a natural process Arising and passing, the view of self, of who and what we think we are. And that's a whole other giant topic, but one there's there's a lot of views that we just don't see. So by not holding to fixed views, this is a key aspect of liberating the mind and heart. And there are views that fall into the realm of just, you know, intellectual exercise and useless spe- speculation and. You know, we get caught in these, uh, trying to come to terms, or you know, a view that we then need feel like we have to answer in some way, find out the answer. There's a, a sutta uh, teaching of the Buddha um, called the Brahmajala Sutta. It's the all-embracing net of views, and it's all Buddha goes into great detail about, you know, these views that just get in the way. There's this one part of that, this classic set of four questions that um, is a reflection of a kind of method of debate that was done, was, big, was a big thing at the time of the Buddha, apparently. And people get into these debates about the nature of things. And uh, the Buddha referred to himself as the Tathagata, the one thus gone. And in this, there's this four questions. Does the Tathagata exist after death? Does the Tathagata not exist after death? Does the Tathagata both exist and not exist after death? Or does the Tathagata neither exist nor not exist after death? There's a fifth question that is not asked here, which is, does it matter? <laughs> you know, this it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> but we can get caught in these things of of seeking some kind of um, answer to a view or an opinion or an idea that we hold that doesn't lead anywhere actually doesn't, has no bearing on suffering in the end of suffering that's what the Buddha said this doesn't, that's what I'm interested in how do we suffer, how do we free the mind and heart from suffering what does have direct bearing on this is summed up in in this teaching on the four noble truths, the truth of suffering its cause, the release of it and the path that leads to it, which is this framework that I'm exploring today of the Eightfold Path as it relates to the metta-sutta. So a mistaken view that is widespread in the culture is that um, transient pleasant experiences are the key to happiness, that they will bring lasting happiness, right? I mean, none of us would say that we believe that is true <laughs> if we were asked, but, you know, it's worth looking at what we're actually <coughs> doing, you know. And it's not that there's something wrong with having pleasant experiences. That is not the point. They are good. We should have them. Please have them. It's not to put, say that there's something wrong with that. But, but to see them as, you know, what happens is our strategy for happiness is to string together as many of those as we can and not have any unpleasant ones. And we can't ever do that. And so we set ourselves up for an endless exhausting and ultimately fruitless uh, quest in this way. So we need to see see pleasant experience for what it is. It's great and we need to not ask it to provide that which it is never capable of providing. It can't function as a, it's not a, a reliable strategy in the long for this deeper kind of contentment or peace. This practice of metta can actually have a, has a direct um, uh, relationship to this understanding because it can open us to a kind of, what we could say a non-worldly kind of happiness or a kind of contentment that is not born of sense contact, that is not born of conditions in the world. It's a deeper kind of happiness. And we can taste this at times when the heart is imbued with this quality of metta, of this deep friendliness. And it can help us through, see through this mistaken view. And turn our minds towards a deeper kind of happiness, the happiness of peace. One of my friends recently told me that um, she had, okay, I have to confess, I don't really know what Facebook is. I mean, I've, I've never s- looked at it, but I, I've heard about it a lot. And apparently you can say things about yourself on there. I think that's the whole purpose of it. But someone, she said she changed her religion on Facebook to kindness in response to a statement made by His Holiness the Dalai Lama where he said, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. So that's what she put there. And, you know, we, we've probably heard this before this this quotation that the Dalai Lama said. My religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. And it can sound so simple and, and kind of sweet that we can miss the profundity of what's behind that or what's underneath that, what that is actually pointing towards. So if, you, if we think of religion, he uses the word religion in this, as the you could say the expression in the world of the deepest kind of understanding or the um You know the the world expression of spiritual understanding, no matter what tradition one might um, be uh, speaking about, what religion, we might get a sense of what he's uh, talking about, because when the when the deepest truths are known and integrated into our very being into our essence, then kindness as our religion, becomes just this natural expression of that mind of wisdom, the mind of understanding. It's it's the effortless expression in the world of the deepest possible kind of understanding of the, the, the mind of, of liberate, a liberated mind. That's just what's there. Those Brahma that's what we find when we let go of everything that gets in the way. That's already there. We don't have to get that and put it in there. That's already there. And so there's a way that this practice of of love, of metta, of cultivating that, and the practice of of wisdom, that these are they, they're going to the same place. That is something I've I have seen so clearly. And the great teacher Dipa beloved teacher, Indian woman, who was a highly realized teacher, lived in Calcutta. And someone said, Dipa Ma, once asked her, "Should I practice metta or or?" Uh, Vipassanā, and she said, "Oh, it just doesn't matter." In her view, it, it didn't matter. They would lead you to the same place, and and I I feel like there's um, some deep truth to that. Either one of them will go to the empty, empty hearted mind. That is, that that is opens the door to these qualities. And uh, the great <coughs> Indian teacher Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj spoke to this really beautifully in this simple uh, one line that is quoted a lot. I'm sure you've heard this, some of you. He said, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And between these two, my life flows. And the wisdom of I am nothing, it doesn't point to some bleak kind of emptiness within. It points to a kind of deep inner wisdom that, is completely unrestricted, open, and boundless. And there's no separation of self and other within that. And so if one is nothing in this way, then there are no barriers to the expression of kindness and care of love. There's nothing that gets in the way of that. It just arises within that because that's the nature of things. And so love and wisdom are like currents that flow together are like strands in one cable, that they support one another and they lead to the place where there is no difference between them. And then the next line in this part of the the, uh, sutta um, describes this abandonment of craving, of grasping, of clinging, the root cause of suffering in in the second noble truth, uh, this core teaching freed from all sense desires, freed from this grasping that is the root of suffering, keeps us bound to this wheel of uh, on endless wandering. And then the final line, such one is not born again into the world. And this is one uh, way of, of talking about the mind, not born into, that, um, into the grasping mind, you could say. Final release from uh, bondage. And it's really fitting that this is how the sutta ends, because this is the thrust of the entire teaching of the Buddha. This is the only thing he was ever interested in, and anything he offered was pointing to this possibility. So this teaching is seen, uh, the quality of metta in this teaching is seen not only as a, as a description of, of this practice, but as a path that leads to Freedom. One of the most, I think, beautiful expressions of this quality of kindness um, and this possibility of, of the boundlessness of this offering and the natural expression of, of wisdom that, is, that uh, come, shines forth in this way is, is through the cultivation of what is called bodhicitta. Bodhi means awakened or awake, and citta is the word in Pali for both mind and heart. There's not a distinction made between mind and heart. So bodhicitta means awakened mind or awakened heart. And on the relative relational level, this is the heart of compassion that is moved to alleviate suffering. On a more ultimate level, you could say it is this awakened mind, the the, uh, open, free, awakened mind, the empty, aware nature of mind that is not obscured by greed, hatred, and delusion, free of concepts of self and other, not bounded by these views. There are no boundaries to the expression of love and kindness. It's like that uh, quotation from Sri Nisargadatta, my life flows between emptiness and love, emptiness and love, the same thing. And if we hold this understanding, we can, We can approach our practice with this motivation born of love and compassion and connection that we awaken for the benefit of all beings. And when I come into the hall and I either bow or hold my hands in Anjali, I bring into words into my mind, may my life and my practice be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. I bring those words into my mind, not always but much of the time. And I started doing this practice quite a while ago. And when I first started, because one of my teachers said that he talked about this bodhicitta and said he was doing this practice of dedicating and would do it regularly. And so I thought, oh, was my a teacher and the founder of IMS, Joseph Goldstein. And I thought, well, okay, if Joseph is doing it, I'm going to do it. And, and I would bring these words into my heart and there would be this voice that said, yeah, right. Who are you kidding? As if. But I just kept doing it. And over time I've noticed that this uh, has changed and that um, that little voice is not so loud and I don't believe it so much. It's not the voice of wisdom, it's the voice of delusion. And and this really, um, this, this uh, movement of heart and this aspiration and dedication has become really powerful for me. So you might consider uh, something, your own version of that, of some way of Offering your practice of connecting to the fact that there's no way that this practice is ever just about any one of us. It's always bigger than that, and the ways that um, and that it may ripple out into the world are that uh, we have no idea what that could be like. But it's never just about it's never just about ourselves. It's always larger. So I'll I'll end uh, this afternoon with a few lines from. Shantideva in The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. kind of touches on this aspiration of uh, compassion and uh, dedication of one's life for the benefit of others. I just find it so very beautiful and inspiring. And this is just a short excerpt from a very long poem. For all those ailing in the world until their every sickness has been healed, May I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. And raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine, and in ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful, and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all they might need. My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and all to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing, to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus, for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So we'll have just a couple of seconds of quiet and let these words drift away.